0: Hello, and welcome to the Surplus Geek Podcast. I'm Jake, and today I am joined by Cucumber, who eventually will probably change their name, but everyone knows him as Cucumber. We're going to call him Cucumber. How is it going?
1: Decent at best. How are you?
0: Pretty good, now that we've got the podcast going again. Um, yeah. A little behind the scenes. We've had so many glitches. All right, so we'll start off with the, the basic question that I totally didn't already ask you. Um, of course. What... How, how, how did you get into how did you get into collecting?
1: Well, it all started probably when I was about 12 years old. Um, really, I think I blame Firebird JP for this. I, I'm pretty sure I stumbled across one of his videos, and then I wanted a mask myself. I think my first mask was a Phalanx Alpha. It was like some Riot mask as well that I ended up giving away anyway. But yeah, so I guess it kind of started from there. Um, I just had like a small collection going up until I was about 13, 14 throughout high school, it kind of slowed down, and I didn't really get serious about it again until I was about 17 years old. Uh, And then that's when I really started to get into U.S. equipment, protective equipment, gas masks. Um, And only recently I've gotten into chemical munitions, decontamination, um, really anything to do with the chemical warfare service as well, like the chemical mortar battalions, chemical decontamination companies, things like that.
0: Yeah, I mean um, uh – you know i I think it's funny that we all kind of got into it at the same time in our lives and stuff I think the funny thing about the firebird uh you know o g youtuber if anyone doesn't know um okay. really like the was the big gas mass youtuber back in the day uh before everyone else really um it, it's funny i don't I, I don't know what got me into i don't i think I just was just one of those weird guys that just happened to be in the military and just was given money but the uh so You've done kind of all over the place, not really all over the place you've done a couple of eras, but what would be your favorite era so far to cover
1: definitely forties and fifties um I find that era very fascinating with the rate at which the chemical warfare service was developing things, how much our doctrine was changing at the time uh, I mean World War II, the early forties that was when we you know first saw our injection molded face piece with the m two um and then development went into the lightweight series and you had the snout type service mask or excuse me, the assault mask and then the snout type service mask. And at the same time, this was going on. You had the E19 series, which would then become the M9 in 1947. Um, there was just a lot going on in that era, not even with masks, even protective clothing. Uh, since world war one, I, I believe in world war one, we were using a certain type of impregnated clothing. It was using like a rosin material or whatever. Um, it wouldn't be until like the mid twenties to thirties that we had, a chloramide compound actually impregnating the clothing. So that saw a little bit of development in the 30s, obviously with uniform change, but it stayed pretty much the same well into the 60s, even the 70s, uh, obviously with different, different compounds impregnating the clothing. But we also saw development with chemical munitions, types of agents we were developing. So there was just a lot going on in this time period as well.
0: Yeah, it's 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 funny that you say into the seventies because I don't think people realize that like the standard for chemical protective gear for like an infantryman was really just impregnated clothing all the way up until eventually the CPOG comes along in the mid to late seventies. So it's it's the that yeah some things change, but basically the basic concepts there that entire time, which is really fascinating when you think about that. Like because I think a lot of people hear chemical protective gear and they think you know those big. Rubber chemical suits, you know, encapsulated suits oh, yeah. and stuff. But like, that stuff is like new. That's like new age stuff. Uh, you know, they, I mean, they had they had tap gear back then. But like for your average infantryman, you really just had the clothes that you're wearing, but like an impregnated version of it. And that's that's pretty much it. Maybe a hood, but even then, and you watch the old videos, that they they told the guys the most important part of your kit was your mask. You know, that was the yeah. that was the most important part. If you got it in your skin, you got it in your skin. You're gonna have to deal with it, kind of thing. That and uh, atropine injectors were big by the time the 70s yes. came around.
1: Well, so speaking of atropine, nerve agents wouldn't really become a part of our doctrine until after World War II because we found stockpiles of German sarin, what we would later call GB agents, as well as tabin. Um Then we'd obviously develop atropine. But during World War II, we didn't have any sort of nerve agent defense. Um, and then the Germans, you know, they were putting all their, all of their development into developing Munitions with nerve agents while we were basically focusing on blister agents Um, because a lot of these agents, that's what a lot of people were developing on and probably would have used. Uh, So we were pretty prepared for blister agents, not so much nerve agents. Um, I'm not going to lie. I just lost my train of thought. So there you go. You can cut that out.
0: (laughs) No, you're good. So um, I think that – no, I get what you're saying because what you're saying basically is the U.S. going into World War II was fighting the last war, literally. Because they were planning for like blister agents from the end of World War I, basically, and, oh, yeah. and didn't I, think I about mean, future things.
1: Everybody kind of was. I mean, the British, the Russians, even the Germans, um, because there was a lot of fear left over from World War I with how effective things like chlorine and phosgene were used. Well, now you have things like nitrogen and mustard or even normal mustard agents and lewisite that were pretty scary. Uh, I mean, if these were used, these would stay in the field for up to weeks at a time, especially mustard. Um, So really developing something like decontamination doctrine was super important had they been used. Uh, It it wasn't like a non-persistent gas, which what that is is when it's deployed, it pretty much dissipates within minutes. But Mm -hmm. that's not what mustard would be. So let's say you're at an artillery battery. You get an attack from mustard gas. Well, I mean, that battery is pretty much out of commission until you can clean it up. Uh, So Things like that were really important for development, and nerve agents wouldn't really be on the radar of the United States Chemical Warfare Service doctrine until after World War II. Um, like I said, with the Germans and their developments of nerve agents, we had no way of detecting it or even fighting it in World War II.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, that's actually kind of scary when you think about it, that we were just pre- pretty much blind to an entire element to what we nowadays would call C-burn, but. And then yep. uh, and then to add into that mix, we also had the atomic aspect of post-World War II, oh, yeah. where it's like, now we got to worry about this and that, because uh, I, I always find that fascinating that that really, like, opened up the eyeballs of the, like, oh, we got to worry about radiological uh, impact as well.
1: Another really big thing that came up during World War II was biological agents. Um, the Japanese were really known for using biological warfare, especially in the Chinese, um, not only using chemical warfare, but... Uh, We had put a little bit of development into biological defense as well. We had our own detector kits in World War II. Um, They had field detector kits that came in a big box, and you would take field samples. You would send it off to a lab, and you'd have to wait pretty much to see if there was anything out there like anthrax or something. Uh, So that was also an aspect, and that really became a bigger thing in the 50s, just like with radiological stuff. Um, Now, while we didn't have anything protective per se, we started developing – you know. radiac sets or uh, oh god geiger counters things like yeah that.
0: yeah yeah and, and i know like uh from watching old training films they also like because like you said there's not really much you can do in a, in a radiological situation but like telling guys if you can find a hole get in the hole if you could dig a hole dig a hole um do something to put you know if you, you have to cover up all your exposed skin if an atomic bomb's going to go off all that stuff comes out and they start you know it's not really i mean even I hate to say it but even nowadays there's not really much that we have in the way of preventing radiological uh effects cuz you know uh, chemical protective gear only protects you so much um mm-hmm. you know it depend you know especially gamma you're screwed with gamma but so yeah, yeah I I I I definitely agree with you it's that it's a uh, I said it before but it's the renaissance of like really getting into chemical biological and I guess radiological uh you know how many times that acronym has changed because we had C- abc cbr uh you know Seaburn now NBC for a while um CBRN is also now Seaburn with an e so and yeah us americans do say Seaburn. just got to point that out um i don't know why we just like to say our acronyms out loud so not NBC. mbc is just NBC. they don't say oh, nimbus yeah. or something like that um so you mentioned the m9 uh I also have a fondness for the M9. Ed, um, you'd want to just go into that a little bit. You know, you don't have to go crazy, but you know.
1: Yeah, um, I won't lie. I'm not too well knowledgeable about the actual development of the M9 series. Um, obviously, around 1943 is when we really started developing. We needed something lighter weight. Um, and the doctrine of this time period, which is where the E6 or the M5 Assault or Army Combat Service Mask would come from, needed a lighter weight mask for amphibious landings um that's kind of where the whole e19 stems from is a lightweight assault mask uh now obviously we didn't develop or we couldn't finalize it during world war ii so we had a stopgap solution that's kind of what the e6 would be while we developed the m9 and what that kind of turned into was oh well now it's our protective mask for pretty much everyone to use not even just assault troops uh it by the time the m9 was introduced, in 1947 it didn't really see any production, or at least as far as I can tell in 1950 or so, 1951, um, is when it would really replace all other service masks, but, um, and it would be, I mean, it would be the standard service mask well into the late fifties until the M17 was finalized. Uh, but that rapid development I was talking about kind of slowed down after the war. We had the M9 shortly after we would start developing the M17 sometime in the early fifties or so would not be finalized until 1959. Uh, but so the M9 is really is a great mask. It's it's taken a lot of the aspects that we had with our normal service mask from World War II, all the good things, and then putting them all in one mask. And now we have this one protective mask that pretty much replaces all of them.
0: Yeah, it's the thing about the M9 is it really is a revolution in design compared to the the hosed mask from before. It kind of brings everything together. It gives you one solid. It really set in motion. It's funny because the M17 is this complete deviation of what the M9 was, you know, it, yeah. it a lot different you had to change doctrine because now you didn't just have a quick change filter on the side and you had to think things a little bit differently it's funny how we went through the m17 the m17 served for a while to then go back to a you know side mounted uh canister filtered mask later on with the m40 and then we again walk away from that design again to go with the m50 which is kind of m17 like in a way it's sort of just external instead of internal filters I just, I yeah. always find that kind of funky that we keep jumping between these concepts. Um,
1: well, especially around this time period, it, it was kind of an organic development because of what the chemical warfare service was doing, they were trying to stay ahead of pretty much everybody else. You know, what What else can we develop? How can we be better? Um, that's where the M9 stemmed from. And then later on it was like, oh, well, we, what if we made a streamlined mask, internal cheek pockets for the filters? You didn't have an external canister to worry about uh, for a field protective mask, and that's Kind of where that idea stemmed from is we need to be better than everybody else. So they developed the M17, and that mindset kind of shot us in the foot because if you recall, the XM29, the XM40 series didn't. It took pretty much from the 70s all the way to the late 80s before we got anything out of that. Yeah, uh, because the M17 started showing its age a little bit too much later on. Uh, it wasn't very modular, and to find a mass to do it all was very hard to do. I mean, at this point, we were still using the M9 for. Toxological agent protective gear um rocket refueling gear things like that
0: yeah anything specialty the m9 stuck around they could they you couldn't beat it i mean they were even making those uh you know new filters for the m9 into the 80s to fill that role and it sucks because i I, like i said i like the m17 but from a warfighter standpoint i really don't know what the military was thinking because if it if the cheek filter meant you could rifle, you could shoulder a rifle better, I would be totally for it. But I don't find the M17 to be easy to shoulder a rifle with. So well, it's... Eh.
1: I was going to say, with that, I'd say that's a little bit better than having to produce two different masks. Yeah. Um, now, the M9, it's insanely easy to shoulder a rifle with the M9, just because of how flat the cheek is. Uh, but with the M17, it was okay, but it was ambidextrous. So you had that going for it.
0: That's true, Uh, yeah.
1: And also with the doctrine of changing filters, this wasn't an entirely new concept. I mean, only recently we had the lightweight series with fixated filters that you had to take off physically anyway. You couldn't do that in the field. Um, That's a point a lot of people bring up that doesn't even really matter Mm -hmm. um, because the filter fixed on the M9, the M11, was pretty much semi-permanent. You didn't take it off unless you needed to, so it's kind of a moot point.
0: I, yeah that that's true i can understand i just think i i specifically think once you get late in the m17s lifetime specifically desert storm oh, like yeah. you're because from a from a practical standpoint modern day at least you know when we were training uh and most of my training on that actually has to do with not my actual unit it was that hazmat unit that i was part of we had papper's So it was, there was a whole different level of consideration with pappers and filter change. Now we weren't changing our filters all the time because we were in training, but the idea was every time we came back, we were going to change out our filters because not only we would, if, if it was in a a real situation because of the, you're, you're pulling air through this filter constantly with papper. So you're, you're constantly, you're saturating it much quicker. So like, and you're only on a work cycle of maybe 20 minutes, uh, like 20 to 30 minutes max. Like you're not out there for more than that because you have guys ready to cycle in for you and stuff, it, you know, work, work rest cycles are important. So I don't know. It's just, it's interesting going from the, the, yeah, you're right though. With the lightweight series, all the early mass, you actually had to send it back. It wasn't something that the average guy would just flip out his filter. Add it, you know, it, it was a process to it. Mm-hmm. And then you, you go into, you know, modern day nowadays. I mean, it's, it's supposed to, again, it's supposed, there's a time, you know, you're supposed to keep up on this stuff. I don't, even know, how it would be implemented with the M50 because, that's something that we don't even train on. We don't even talk about, or didn't talk about when I was in. I'm like, you know, how often? Because I, I, I honestly don't think the military honestly thinks about it because it's just like, if if the if a weapon is being, if you have to use your fuel protective mask in a combat situation, it's already bad. You're you're already in bad territory. You can't even evac people. You can't a I can't do any of that. So I don't even know if that's even a consideration. Honestly, now that I think about it. I, I just think i don't know but yeah yeah you have a good point that is a good point that is kind of i just know that that's a common criticism of the m17 and it is it does suck to take the filters out of the m17 so
1: it is it's not the greatest thing in the world to do and what made made it even worse is pretty much every time you use it you had to replace the filters before you went into the field especially if you were expecting blood agents um the filters wouldn't last that long against blood agents to begin with but let's say you don't have a fresh set well you have even less time now because the charcoal in there doesn't last forever Uh, and that's with a lot of other filters as well
0: yeah that's true yeah and and i don't don't know if the the pork chop the small i don't know if it if it's because of the how it saturates the filter because that's something that i always wondered is you know you look at a canister style filter it's it's a circle you're just pulling things through Mm-hmm. But with the pork chop, you're, it's kind of elongated in a, in a fashion that I wonder how much coverage that top portion of charcoal gets in in protection. And it's getting way into the weeds there, but it's just something to think about. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And, and that's something I haven't really looked into, but just from outside observation, it, it has so much surface area that parts of the filter get saturated slowly. And so you get more life out of the canister. Um, obviously, it wasn't as bad because we used it uh, I, I can't see it being worse than the M11 canister. If I had to No, pass, but no way. It, it, it has changing.
0: to be. A, yeah. I was going to say it has to be at least effective enough that they kept the mask yeah. in service for 30. Well, but yeah, 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Over 30 years. Cause it goes into the nineties because it took mm-hmm. so long for the M40 production to get going. So yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I, so other, the other thing I wanted to focus on, cause you, you, you've covered this quite a bit is chemical protective gear, the clothing, the equipment, you know, um, you've done tap, you've done kind of that vesicant style protected, you know, overgarment or, or mm-hmm. impregnated. Um, how is it getting into that? Because I, I find the, the impregnated gear to be interesting because it's just it's just so many components. Everything is is protect. Even underwear is like as, oh, yeah. a part of it.
1: Well, so the impregnated clothing, because if you look at a lot of other countries, like the Soviets were doing what the Germans had and what the British had, I take that back. I believe they had their own impregnated clothing. I don't know too much about the British. But the Russians and the Germans, they had these rubber suits. Well, the advantages of impregnated clothing was you could just have a standard combat uniform and issue it to everybody. Um, The only thing you would need to do, obviously, is do the actual impregnation. Uh, It comes with its disadvantages. It's not waterproof, and any large droplets of agents you got on you would pretty much make it useless anyway. Uh, But it was very good for vapors. Um, Let's say you were in a mustard mustard attack or something, uh, if you got splashed with must- mustard gas on your chest, well, it, it'll probably go go through the clothing, but if, if you are just running through vapors, it wouldn't affect you. Um, it also allowed air to flow through, so you weren't as hot in your protective yeah. gear. Uh, and then, of course, your underwear. That was really important. So I have a manual and it shows a lot of graphic imagery of the effects of mustard gas on the skin. And underwear and the crotch region. I've seen the photos. I wouldn't want I'm very glad that they decided it was a good idea to cover up that with yeah. a, a protective underwear as well. Um, but, I mean, this is pretty much basically World War One technology. We didn't really develop a new impregnating compound until, I want to say, the late 20s, early 30s. Uh, but it pretty much stayed the same, you know, changing with the uniform all the way up until the 70s. I mean, the CPOG wasn't even standard whenever it came out. It was still a, a special issue item. Um and we were still using impregnated clothing, even in the '90s technically, with our impregnated underwear for toxicological agent protective gear. But in World War II, you had so many uniforms: you had the wool uniform, HPT uniform, the khaki uniform, the flannel, um, and all of that. Th- this is that doctrine chain I was talking about. Post-war, immediately after, all it got narrowed down to: you had your standard you had standard combat uniform that was impregnated; had didn't have any special modifications. You had your cold, wet environment uniform, which was just the, in 1951, impregnated. or So I assume it doesn't state if it was a standard a special suit or if it was the 1951 gear, but I digress. Uh, and then your cold, dry. Um, and it was very simplified. And that pretty much the 50s is what would be the mainstay of our protective uniform, like I said, well into the 1970s. But this technology was nothing new.
0: Yeah and in in just really even in the 70s you know um I, the Seabog's a weird development history but the they, they didn't even really put a lot of focus on that protective gear for the average dude it was just the mask and just have a mask on um, <laughs> and they just um it, it it's weird that like it took and there's a lot like you said there's actually a lot of advantages to the impregnated clothing versus say a charcoal suit that is kind of become the standard or at least for the u.s military uh and just it's just your standard issue uniform there's nothing special to so there's nothing changing to you you're not putting something over your uniform I mean, a lot of guys run their their suits naked basically because it's so hot wearing a cpog or bdo or or j list mm-hmm. any of those um i mean that's going to change i know the whatever how we say uipe i, I don't up or Yippie. i know that's going to change things into the future it's supposed to be better we'll see um but yeah I i always found it i found it interesting learning about it and stuff and how it really is you know even having pregnation for your boots um yeah you know it, it, everything you know that's before you know because it, again it's even gloves uh we didn't have like rubber chemical gloves until the late 70s that's that's when that i mean for for standard issue at least that that's really when it starts to show up you know before that you had basically special and impreg- impregnated gloves as well right they just yeah like a-
1: it, I, I mean really even cuz the odds of you having permeable protective gloves in the field is pretty low yeah so another development was the m5 ointment that could pretty much be used in place of gloves and in place of a hood uh in the 40s obviously you had the wool hood but Later on in the late 40s, early 50s, I mean the combat uniform didn't even have a protective hood. You would just take your M5 ointment and rub it on the exposed areas of your head and neck, and if you didn't have gloves, you just rub it on your hands and you were fine. Uh, Now, it was good for blister agents. I can't really say so for nerve agents. That isn't really touched upon in the Doctrine at that time
0: interesting that's it's just funny to think about nowadays just not even close it just be yeah, gloves, no, you know full full gloves you'd have your overboots on obviously your j-list and then your mask i mean you just go full full tilt on that stuff and mm-hmm. back then they were like you got ointment just put it on your body you're good to go put your mask on get get back yeah. in the fight
1: well and so that was another advantage you didn't have to put on an entire suit for protection um and i would argue it's protective capabilities, but, I mean, there's a lot of documentation of the army's development, you know, with the different compounds we use, the M5 ointment itself. Um, it seemed to be pretty good for as long as we used it. Like I said, even in the 60s with the M17, it was pretty much the same as the 50s.
0: Yeah, and, and the M17, you know, uh, I don't know the history of the M6 hood, but, like, you don't see the M6 early on with the M17. It really doesn't come until... Very late. I feel like the late '60s is when they started to kind of issue out the M6 hoods, and they started becoming standard affair.
1: Well, and so that was another change in our doctrine because when the M17 came out, its protective hood was still in development. Um, it was the E33 uh, chemical biological protective hood, and this is kind of a guess, a guesstimate. I don't really see the M6 coming out until like around 1962, 1963. So there was a time period where the M17 just didn't have a hood. Um, And even still, it wasn't really standard until the mid-60s. And even in Vietnam, you don't see them being issued a whole lot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Vietnam, I feel like it's not. I, I know I've seen it. I just can't think. But I'm pretty sure not until like 69, 70. So like we're talking late, late into the war. And I mean, by that point, the XM28 started to kind of filter its way in to be used as the tunnel rat kind of role for mass and stuff it's kind of all over the place but yeah you're right because if you think about uh way city and stuff the marines are just wearing m17s no hoods nothing
1: well and with that they weren't really expecting anything crazy from the Viet Cong. i mean the only that's thing we had been doing was uh, tear gas so why would you issue an entire protective uniform and, and a hood if you didn't need it
0: that's true that's a good point yeah and it's funny to think about too because now when you think of the m17 at least for me i think of the hood because desert storm mm-hmm. it really cements that it's really weird to think that there's an alternate universe where the m40 got actually produced in a high enough numbers to be issued and, and it's the face of desert storm instead of the m17 which is it's just i don't know it's weird to think about um yeah and then the other side of chemical protective gear which i fast the most fascinating side of my well i don't know it's hard to say i like tap gear i love tap gear I think the history of tap gear is very interesting because it, it really doesn't change. Well, when when a tap gear come to service, like the fifty, like mid fifties,
1: we estimate around nineteen fifty three because that's when it's first mentioned in a manual, um, and then the M four hood to follow shortly after in like nineteen fifty four or something.
0: Yeah, and it stays the same basically until Pretty the nineties, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, I mean, with slight modifications, with the buttons, the underwear changed. Um, but pretty much besides boots, nothing really changed throughout the fifties and sixties and seventies.
0: Yeah. It's, it's crazy to think about that. I, I mean, I know when you get into the ninety when you get into the late era of the tap, the nineties, it gets really funky because that's when, yeah, well, that's when the, the civilian side of things starts to seep a little bit more into for protective gear for the military. Because, uh, when we were doing our training on the hazmat stuff, they did a whole like history of, for modern day, um, response and it was like there's considered like pre nine eleven and post nine eleven for for response and the levels of how we handle things and what gear. Because before there wasn't really a plan before nine eleven. They basically were just starting to figure it out in like ninety eight, ninety nine. And one of the things that was coming up in ninety eight, ninety nine was do we stick with the current issue? I mean you had in the ITAP, which I don't even know if the ITAP ever really went anywhere. Um but they had the uh, the the tap gear was starting to slowly become showing its age, and they're like, you know, there's all these new designs. Encapsulated wasn't technically new, because um, there's what the M5 encapsulated suit. It's kind of like a encapsulated suit, but okay, I can't remember. Um, but probably getting that wrong. But it's that it's that interesting era where like tap tap was that good for that long that you know there was no reason to change it until. The new millennium. I mean, that—that's when you think about it, it's kind of insane because things change so rapidly. I mean, how many things changed between the '50s and 2000? You went from the M1 to the Pazgit. You went from no body armor, usually, to always body armor. To actually plate carriers by the end of the '90s uh, to having plates. I mean, plates weren't new, but so I, I just tap gear. I, I know, I know you've done quite a bit on tap gear. Um, you have a video on tap gear too. You've done. You got quite a few photos of tap gear.
1: Yeah, I've gotten a few things wrong in that video. I need to go back and, uh,
0: it's how it goes. You can't win.
1: But yeah, I mean, if it ain't broke, it's just one of those things. What else could we have done better? It, It was just a big rubber suit thick enough to protect against the heaviest, you know, mustard gas, which is probably one of the worst things you could have, you could have gotten on you besides rocket fuel, which was a whole separate ensemble. It was just one of those things
0: yeah i i don't know tap gear is just one of those things where i uh i I look at it and and it's unique in its design i think when people think of chemical protective gear they think of something like a big giant rubber suit Mm. And and like we just said earlier it's actually just your standard issue gear basically impregnated which is you know completely and even more so again how often would that stuff even been used i mean again just probably mask and The the M5 ointment, like you said, that's probably about it.
1: Yeah, basically. I mean unless you were – like in World War II, uh, I believe even on D-Day, there were some instances where protective clothing was issued that was impregnated because they were almost kind of expecting the Germans to use gas even though they didn't ultimately. Um, But unless – like in Korea, I don't really think there was a high threat of chemical agents like there was in World War II. Um, So the odds of it being issued anyway was pretty low. I mean, you had your masks, obviously, but that's pretty. that was basically standard equipment at that time.
0: Yeah, and the M5, what was standard with most kits? Just...
1: Yeah, I, so the kit itself, you, standard came with the M5 ointment whenever mm-hmm. it was issued. Um, and then, of course, you had your atropine later on with the M5A1, which I don't really know a timeline. It seems to come around the early 50s, early to mid 50s, but I can't really tell. No, definitely early 50s, because it's mentioned in a um, an earlier manual.
0: And atropine is for nerve agents, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's pretty interesting.
1: I, I don't, I don't know the exact science behind it, but uh, the receptors that respond to nerve agents, the atropine will, I guess, adhere itself to it and prevent nerve agents from adhering to it. I don't know. I'd have to look into it. Yeah, it's like a
0: blocker but almost. Yeah,
1: it's like, and it's like an antidote also.
0: Yeah. So.
1: There's videos, uh, you can find them on YouTube, where they're injecting or they're exposing animals like goats and rabbits to nerve agents, and then they just shoot them up with atropine; they're fine.
0: <laughs> you gotta, lo- you gotta love the old. You gotta love oh, the yeah. animal testing oh, yeah. and stuff. My favorite thing is that rabbits were used as uh, sniffers when they would go around chemical munitions and stuff. They'd use a rabbit in a oh, cage. Yeah, uh, you can find videos of them with a with a white rabbit because it always has to be a white rabbit, and uh, because rabbits are so sensitive to change and smell, uh, they'll they'll detect that there's a leak, and they actually will pull, like move them around the chemical munitions to see if there's any leaks and stuff, and that was done well into the seventies. Um, there was That's a there's a I can't remember what news agency, but some news agency did a report a video on on chemical stuff because uh i think it was the late 60s early 70s the army accidentally killed a bunch of sheep um it was either army or air force some they dropped a munition and, and ended up the wind pattern changed shifted over someone's farm it killed all their sheep oh, and see. there was a whole thing went on and they did a report on it and i remember watching the video and the next thing you know this guy's walking around in tap gear with a rabbit in a cage and it's just like moving it around the munitions and stuff in this <laughs> you know warehouse and i'm like what is going on so you know that's a, that's apparently a thing and as a rabbit owner i'm like man Rabbits got a bad deal. Um, Oh,
1: yeah. A whole lot of testing went on with rabbits and goats in the 40s and 50s. I mean, there was a whole – I forget what it's called, but there was a a whole operation where they just took a bunch of goats and rabbits and put them in a bunker, and then they shot nerve agent munitions at it. Um, And then some of them were in protective, I guess, encasements, and some weren't. And I think what they were demonstrating was – As long as you were protected and you got hit by a nerve agent in a bunker, you were fine. And because of its non-persistency, I think they even went in after a while without protective gear. Oh, to
0: prove? Yeah.
1: Yeah. My
0: favorite is uh, when they set up like goats and pigs and stuff in the atomic testing, and they're like, we're going to see what happens. And it's like, it doesn't take a genius to know if you put it within its blast radius that you're just going to have nothing. Like, I never, because I remember it, like watching an old documentary on it, and they were like, and they were gone. There was nothing left, and it's like, yes, because you put them inside the blast, you, you knew what was going to happen. That was such a that waste generated, of generated. Yes. Yeah, it was just I'm not sure what the plan there was. Um, so future, what's your future plans, gear, uniforms,
1: such? Well, um, I'm currently in the process of joining a living history organization up in New Jersey at uh, Sandy Hook. They're and what they do. They have uh, the old artillery batteries over there. They kind of upkeep everything. Um, I'm currently in the process of joining that, so I'd like to, I guess, gear all of my collecting towards the 245th Coastal Artillery Battalion, as well as maintaining the chemical weapons aspect of it. Um, This next year, hopefully the plan is to go back up there. Older Mask is up there as well. Um, I I met up with him back in October, and we we did a little something. It's on my Instagram, but we did a little mock decontamination of the 6-inch gun. Up there, But the hope is to have working decontamination apparatuses, have a real gas drill, and then go in with protective gear and then decontaminate the gun uh, in front of, like, I don't know, an audience, hopefully. But that's kind of, I guess, the future at this point. I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I moved away from just masks. I pretty much have everything I need. It's just more so getting all of the field gear, detector equipment, um, decontamination-related items. I've even gotten into chemical mortar related items as well. So just kind of broadening my scope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, that sounds really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. On Instagram, you, I remember you guys, you, you post in the, the decontamination of the artillery piece. That's, that's a, that was a good set. Um, yeah, that, was, that was a good day. And everyone wants to follow you on Instagram. Your Instagram is.
1: CWS.history1944. There
0: you go. You're not chemical cucumber anymore. You've moved on, moved I'm- up
1: tired of being the cucumber
0: i mean i i i can get it i can understand it although i think you could have you might have been able to work it into i i get it though i get it uh you know i was
1: just i guess i get it was stagnant i was i don't want to say tired of it but i just wanted something new
0: no i totally understand I,
1: if you if you still call me cucumber i don't i don't care that's what yeah. i'm known as ask at this point
0: but it's one of those i i i, I get it because surplus geek i i crafted surplus geek to be the name and it's great name and i love the name but it's one of those things where it's like i'm stuck on this i'm stuck on the logo i can i i'm stuck on the (laughs) you know so it 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 is who i am for the future and i guess i'm okay with it but i totally get trying to the the rebranding almost to try to really you know focus in and stuff but that's cool i like the idea of the living history thing i mean that's something that i always wanted to do reenacting but i just do not have the time the effort or the hair to do reenacting at the moment. So, Yeah. And uh, real quick, what uniform are you currently wearing? Because you are...
1: I am, well, currently... Dress the part. Drip check. Um, the Ike uniform. Standard Ike jacket. This one's dated 44. I managed to find one that fits me. Uh, and then I just have some some 18-ounce Surge pants on. Nice. Uh, and then I've got the... Uh, the Chemical Warfare service pin on it as well
0: awesome that's pretty cool yeah there's something about those the the 40s uniforms that just you know
1: well they look sharp i like it um probably one of my favorite looking uniforms from the 40s although the normal dress tunic does look very nice as well yeah
0: it's it's funny that we went back to a more similar style with the current new i'm so happy we
1: did that the the pinks and greens as they call it
0: yeah i'm mad because i got out before we got those
1: man but they look so sharp just the sharp looking uniform
0: uh i can't imagine we used to do uh the infantryman's ball and uh you know everyone shows up in their dress uniform and stuff and i just can't imagine what it looks like now with because i know some guys probably still wear the asus which Mm -hmm. the army service uniforms okay it's not terrible it's just it's simple there's not much to it the pinks and greens just because they harken back to that that Classic era, and everyone thinks Band of Brothers style. You know, they oh, brought yeah. back the Ike jacket too. You there is an Ike, an Ike did. style jacket, so you can do. Yeah, it's just there's it's, just something about it. There's just something about, and it's there's no beret with it. That's that's the key. I don't like the beret.
1: Didn't they bring, they brought back the side caps? Didn't they?
0: I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and yeah. it's just berets can be really cool. They can look really good. The problem is is that you have to form your own beret, and. A lot of people don't know how to form a beret, including myself, so they end up looking bad. And if you ever need to get another beret, you have to do the whole process over again. And you also have to shave them. first thing you do is you shave your beret because there's all this, like, the material is all fuzzy and stuff. So you take your razor blade, you know, your, your shaving razor, and you just sh- shave it. That's, that's something I had to do. That was fun. I had to do it twice. Um... Yeah, it's, and there's a, there's a way to fold it. And, and, you know, because it's just this, like, chef hat thing going on when you first get it, you actually have to... You got to fold it so it fits on your head, right? And then you have to... There's a way to, um, when you take it off, to fold it so that way you can store it. So there's a whole process that. And I feel like it's just too much work compared to a simple garrison cap or a just a field service cap thing, you know, anything else. I mean, the army in hats is just... It's a it's a weird history. I I don't like the patrol cap either. The patrol cap always looked weird. <laughs> it doesn't really sit in your head right. The, the Marines got hats right. I hate to say it, but the Marines got their hats right with the eight points. You know. Oh yeah. It just it just you know that of the Rangers Ranger Ranger roll your your patrol cap. That's another uh, that looks great. Rangers got it right too. But uh, I think we will call that it for the podcast. Um, I want to you know this is a good first episode for season 3 hopefully i have more than 7 episodes this year i want to thank you for coming on um, it was it was fun Thanks talking to you me. you're a guest that i should have had on a long time ago i apologize for that um okay. but if you want to learn more about that this this type of stuff uh it, your instagram is a really good place to go you're really knowledgeable um you do a lot of good research you're one of the the highly respected research people in the community so
1: uh, don't inflate my head too much <laughs> yeah well it's so true right.
0: well you focus Sorry. more too so you like i i am broad i i hit things on a more broad standpoint so you focus more so you have a lot better understanding of things than i ever could because i'm just i'm jumping from scene to scene here going mad um but with that we'll sign off um i hope everyone enjoyed this episode uh come back i'm gonna try to keep to the two-week schedule Uh, so, so, so come back in two weeks, I guess. Hopefully, hopefully there's an episode and, uh, thanks for coming on Cucumber. And, uh, that's it.
1: Thank you.